You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Thanks, Scott and uh, Hunter Dawson for preaching last Sunday and giving me the privilege to go and preach Thursday night. I taught Wednesday and then I preached Thursday night and then twice on Sunday morning. And you know, I'm, out of that experience, I'm going to... Uh, I did not know they did that until this end of this week. But what happened there, I never put together until Debbie started talking about it. We'd been praying for God to move in revival. Uh, Some of y'all prayed with me for 50 days. I had 70 people saved. They they professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in those services. And listen, we had, they, they shoot that thing into the correctional center at Union Union is for lifers. You kill somebody, that's where you go in Florida. Uh, you murder somebody, you go there. You're in there for life. Uh, death row is there. Lifers are there. There were two men who were lifers that stood that uh, Sunday to give their life to Jesus Christ. So I, I never, never thought about our praying here, how God would take that and use it there. But I'm so thankful. Thank you for praying for me and praying with me. And uh, it's just amazing. You know, I get, I'm glad to be home. Um, it was 105 degrees in St. Augustine Friday. Uh, five of our grandchildren we'd not seen in a year, and they were in there begging, Doc, come to the beach. Let's go on the beach. Let's go on the beach. I said, you go ahead. Honey will take you, but I'm not going. Um, uh, it was just too hot to go. And I never in my lifetime thought, never in my lifetime, I have pastored for 42 years Roe v. Wade has been 50 years, is it? At least 50 years, if not a little more. Never in my lifetime did I think we would see that thing overturned. I want you to listen. Amen. I'm happy about it. I can tell you that. Debbie started the pregnancy care center. You know, all these guys get on social media and they say, well, now the work begins. Well, what the devil do you think I've been doing for the last 42 years? Uh, I can remember the first little girl that came to us out of high school pregnant and came in and shared with us uh, in my first pastorate out of seminary. And, and we cared for her and nourished her and sat mom and dad down and talked to mom and dad. And uh, we've been doing that ever since. Deb started the crisis pregnancy center in High Point, North Carolina. And then we had one in First Dallas. And so we've been working with this for all of our ministry. Uh, All of our ministry, we have worked with it. Listen to the words of Solomon. Deliver those who are being taken away to death and those who are staggering to slaughter. Oh, hold them back. And I just thank God for the day uh, that we have now to see that come about. So now I'm going to do something this morning. If it's your first time here, I don't normally do this, but I'm doing it this morning. Put your books away. Get a piece of paper and a pencil out. Here comes the test. Um, I want to show you something. Uh, how in the world did we end up where we are uh, in, in this country? How did, we, how did we end up in the place where you've got people screaming their heads off on television uh, because you can't kill a little baby anymore? How did we get there? Where did all of that come about? I can take you back 1963 when the Supreme Court at that time uh, put, put out of school Bible reading and prayer. Um, you can go back further than that, but uh, 
Let me tell you, that had a great deal to do with how we've ended up where we are right now. Several years ago, a guy by the name of Chuck Colson, do y'all remember Chuck Colson? Chuck Colson was part of that group that was in on Watergate, spent time in jail, got saved. The Lord radically saved him. This is a guy that's got a law degree from Brown. Now, that's, you just don't, you know, float through Brown. Lieutenant in the, in the Marines, um, brilliant lawyer, brilliant mind, and uh, started one of the most successful prison ministries in human history. He, Bill Glass, and the Apostle Paul had three really good prison ministries. Um, and Chuck Colson was talking about this very thing. In fact, this was the last thing he was talking about before he had the stroke that took him, uh, took him home to be with the Lord. He was talking about culture. Talking about culture. Now, and he pointed something out I'd never thought about before. Do you know what is at the root of culture? Can y'all see this? Can everybody see it? You see culture up there on the, on the screen. You want to you see what's at the root of culture? Do you see this? Cult. Now, that's a bad word in our day. But in the 16th century, it was not. Uh, and let me give you a biblical illustration of that. Uh, epithumia is a, is a word you'll come across in the Greek New Testament. It means strong desire, a strong hunger, a strong urging, a strong learning. We translate that word sometimes as lust. Now, in the Greek, epithumia, lust is neither bad nor good. It, you can talk about a lust after a person that's not my mate. That's, that's wrong. But you could also say, I lust after Krispy Kreme donuts, which is very good. <laughs> it depends on how the word is used. Same thing with cult. In the 16th century, out of the Latin cultus, the French take this and they get culture. Um, you know, you add some X's and some O's and U's, and then you get culture. Well, culture became to mean how people speak, how people dress, how a people, the art of a certain people, the music of a certain people, that became culture. You had this before you had civilization. Culture is what led to civilization. And at the heart of culture is this word cult. Do you know what the original content of this word means? It means the practice of worship. It means the practice of the word of a God. Do you know that every culture, every civilization that has ever been dug up by archaeologists, ever been found in the backwoods of South America in the jungle, every single culture, every single civilization has a God or gods and has right and wrong and rules that that God has passed down to those people who in that culture follow that. So at the heart of culture, you have this concept of God and God's word and God's worship, the worship of God. That is the cult right there in culture. That's what it means. That means something different today. I understand that. 
uh, and I don't even have to give you a definition of cult in our day, but it's taken on a different meaning. However, it originally had this concept of what God would say, the worship of God and what God would say to those people. Now, we have a God who speaks. Major difference between our God and every other God. Our God speaks, and he gave his word to his people, the Hebrews, who, by the way, were to become a a nation of priests to the entire world. But they sinned. And he only got one tribe out of that whole 12 tribes. He only got one tribe. And they became a priest then to the rest of the tribes. Uh, And that's... That's how he began the Jewish culture. That's how that began. That civilization, that nation, those people, and it was founded on what? What was it founded on? There are 10 of them. Two M's? Is that right? Spelling's not my forte. And at this point in my life, I'm not going to put that wrinkle in my head. Um, Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is what founded that culture, that civilization. Do you realize the whole of Western civilization is founded on the Ten Commandments? The whole of it. I'm talking about uh, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, all the way through Eastern Europe, all the way through Western Europe, all the way over to the United States, we were founded. You say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I thought we were founded on the democracy of Greece. Well, in some extent, we did take principles of democracy from Greece. You know where the three branches of government come from? Come from the Phoenicians in Carthage. The Carthaginians had three branches of government. So it comes from another. But what is it based on? It's based, you said, well, I thought we were based on British law. What do you think British law is based on? All of Western civilization is based on this. And you know what this is? This is good. This is good. You'll never be able to separate good from God. Now, just hang on. In this, the first four commandments, God tells me how I relate to him. I worship him. I don't worship anything else. I honor him. I don't take his name in vain. Like is every other word on television today. And so in the first four commandments, I get how I relate to God. Here is this supreme authority above me. And I submit to his authority. Number five, the fifth commandment tells me how I relate to the two people that give me birth raise me, diaper me, feed me, and care for me and spend about $250,000 on me by the time I get through college so I can turn around and smart mouth them. Where his commandment said, you don't do that. You show some respect because these people are the ones who gave you life, who have cared for you, who've watched over you, who've made everything in your life possible. So there you have five commandments that tell me about the authority that should be in my life. Then you've got the next five commandments. The next five commandments relate to other, other people, each other. Do you know what the next five commandment tells me to do? Don't mess with another man's life. You shall not mar- murder. I don't mess with his life. Number two, the second thing it tells don't mess with his wife. You don't commit adultery. Number three, 
Don't mess with his stuff. Leave his stuff alone. Don't steal. You come on down to number four, and number four tells me don't mess with his good name. You don't get somewhere and start bad-mouthing somebody else just because you don't like them or care for them. I don't bear false witness against somebody. And then number five, God says, just, hey, let's just wrap it all up. Don't want anything he's got. Don't covet what he's got. Those ten commandments built Western civilization. It's why you live in the kind of house you live in now. It's why you have the kind of paying job you have now. It's why you have an educational uh, process that you have right now. It's because of the basis. This has been very good. In the days of Saturday Night Live, the Ten Commandments have been very, very good to me. Baseball has been very, very good to me. You remember that. Some of y'all are old enough. Now, that's the good of culture. That's how our culture. What happens to culture? Listen. What happens to culture? When we drop this. What happens to culture when that goes? You got people screaming their head off about not being able to kill a baby in the womb. That's what happens to culture. It begins to unravel. It begins to disintegrate. It doesn't all fall apart at one moment. But you give it enough time and you come up with real crazy stuff. Like taking a gun and going into a school and just killing about 17 people. You come up with the disintegration, the unraveling of your culture. See also America 2022. This is what's happened to us. We've gotten rid of God at the center of our culture. Because some so-called intellectuals think that it sounds really cool to attack God and Christianity. And aren't we, what a, what a utopia we're living in today because of that, right? We're on the verge, folks. I don't know if you realize it or not. I had a pastor from another state send me a note this morning. He says, I, I, I declare I think we're on the verge of civil war in this country. And let me tell you, he's not far off. We live in a crazy day and time. All because we're trying to prove we don't need God nor his word. When the very best thing for us has always been God and his word, it has been what? Good. It has been God. Okay. You ready for your test? What's back there? Get out from back there. All right. Now, I don't normally do that, but I wanted to do it this morning to help you have a little bit of an understanding of where we are and to understand that the best thing for us in life is God, and God is good. Take your copy of God's Word. Go with me, if you will, to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul is writing, and he's writing Timothy, who happens to be at the church in Ephesus, a very secular city where, you know, abortion was legal, slavery was legal, um, you know, where a man was 
not just the master of his house, but he was the law in his house and could do away with anybody that he wanted to do. It was, uh, it was a wicked pagan world was what it was. And so he's writing Timothy, who is there at the church in Ephesus. If you went to Greece with me, you remember very well that incredible, the remains of Ephesus, the ruins of Ephesus, I think, are the best in the, of the ancient world. Well, he's writing to Timothy there. By the way, after he writes this, he's going to write Titus. Then he's going to turn around and write Timothy, and that's it. Um, by the end of Timothy, he knows that he's going to lose his life, and uh, it's a very short period after 2 Timothy that he is martyred. He's writing Timothy now. He comes down to the last chapter. If you go through the Pauline epistles, he will come to these little staccato-like statements in these last verses of a book, of an epistle. And he's giving them just little bits of instruction of what they're to do. Little words, little bites, sound bites of things of how they should live. And so he comes to this and he says, Timothy, as pastor of the church in Ephesus, this is what you need to do. Now look at what he says. Instruct those who are rich in this present world. Now you say, hey, now preacher, that already lets me. I might as well just get up and go home because that's not me. Well, listen, let me just read you something right here. Uh, a study that was done by the United Nations. If you say this doesn't apply to me, I'm not rich. Well, compared to the world population, everybody in this place is rich. A study by the United Nations revealed that if you have assets, now listen, assets of $2,200, you're richer than 50% of the world's population. You didn't know you were so wealthy, did you? Um, if you have assets of $61,000, you are wealthier than 90% of the world's population. That amount, $61,000, does not have to be in money in the bank. It could be equity in your house. It can be a car. It can be in a retirement fund. It can be investments. If you have warm clothes to wear, a safe heated bed to sleep in, and you ate three meals yesterday, you're better than most people in the rest of the world. You're rich. Here are the bandies right there. Would y'all agree with that? In the place that you serve, where you serve, do you think that's right? Just scream out amen anytime you want to. Just, amen, we are. All of us are in a far better place than most of the rest of the world. So when the word of God comes through Paul here, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and he says, instruct, teach, disciple, discipline those who are rich in this present world. Don't put a dollar mark on that. Don't begin to think, well, all of this has got to do with dollars. It does not. It has to do with what God has blessed you with. Now, listen. Where does goodness fit into all of this? We've looked at love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. And we really have to go to the word of God and just look at these words because these things have gotten so misunderstood. You say love today, love is so general today. We don't know really, really what you're talking about. Same thing with goodness. We say, I've got a good set of tires. Man, you, your hair looks good. Well, what does your hair have to do with tires? What, what, where, where's the cross over there? What do you, you use the same word to explain. Good night, good morning, good riddance, good for nothing, goodbye, good day, have a good day. You just stop and start thinking of all things. That good, the word good has been bled pale of any meaning whatsoever. 
And so you've got to go back to the Word of God and look at what he's talking about. So Paul gives us that in Galatians chapter 5 when he says the fruit of the Spirit is good, goodness. But then look at what he says when you come over uh, to chapter 6 of Galatians and verse 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good. Look at verse 10. So then while we have opportunity, let us do good. To all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. He's telling me that I shouldn't lose heart in doing good, and that I should take every opportunity to do good to everybody, but especially I should be looking for opportunities to do good to those who are fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Now, where does all this goodness come from? It comes from God. James talks about that in James chapter 1 when he says that every good gift, everything that is good, and every perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, from above, comes down from above from the Father of lights. Everything that is good. So it begins to build a concept in your head. Now, what Paul's going to do here as he speaks to the head uh, the pastor of the church in Ephesus, is this. He's going, to, he's going to give him this idea. And the idea of the fruit of goodness is that uh, goodness reflects godliness. Now get that. Goodness reflects godliness lived out in a practical way. Now that's what Paul is going to tell Timothy right here. And essentially, he's telling us. So let me begin with the fruit of goodness, that it embodies the character of God. If you want to know what goodness is, you've got to look to God. You can't look, you can't look to the government. You can't look to the state. You can't look to the institutions. You can't look to those things. If I want to see what good is, I've got to go to God. So he begins and he says, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Now, let me just stop with that. Goodness in our day, when we think of goodness, this is the way. I got the good house. I got the good job. I got the good salary. I got the good education. I got the good car. I've got the good luxury vacation. I've got all. That's good. Goodness to us is the good life. You, you don't find that anywhere in the word of God. That, that's, that's a man-made concept of what goodness is. And so when you look at it and you say, well, is he saying that the rich, the wealthy are, are wrong? No, he's not saying that. But listen, the first 40 years of Moses' life, he lived not in richness. He lived in opulence. Job was rich. He was wealthy. Abraham was wealthy. Isaac was wealthy. Jacob was wealthy. The 12 sons, the 12 patriarchs, they were wealthy. Solomon was wealthy. David became wealthy. You go through all the word of God and you begin to see this. Joseph of Arimathea was wealthy. Now you got to throw all these people out if in your mind you begin to attack people who are wealthy. Lazarus, Mary, Martha, we believe that they were very wealthy in that culture, in that society, in that civilization, in that day. And what does the Word of God tell you about that anyway? Well, God speaks through Moses to the entirety of the nation of Israel and listen to what he says. But you shall remember the Lord your God. This is Deuteronomy 8, 18. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. 
You wake up in a nice home. You've had a good sleep. You've had air conditioning. Thank God. for Whoever invented air conditioning, we need to dig that guy up and pin something on him. Uh, you, you've had a good air condition. You've had a ceiling fan. You get up. You're going to have, listen, you're going to have ham, grits, eggs, biscuits. Let's pray and go home. Um, <laughs> For breakfast in the morning. Listen, how did you get that? You got it one way. God gave you that ability to do that. That's where it comes from. And you know what that says? It says God is good. Now, look at what he says. 1 Timothy 6. Listen to what uh, Paul instructs Timothy. He says, there are two things here I need to instruct you to teach the congregation. Number one, not to be conceited because of your wealth. And you say, well, now that lets me... Out. Now listen, that's an attitude that he's talking about there. And it doesn't have a dollar mark on it. Well, I don't make, you know, a seven-figure salary, so I'm not wealthy. So that kind of lets me out. No, listen, let me tell you, I've seen poor people. And I don't say this to be funny. I say this is true. This is true. I, re I remember this. I'm young enough, I remember my grandparents did have indoor plumbing. <clears throat> now, my grandmama did not have a faucet. She had a pump at the sink. <clears throat> And she, you kept a bottle of water or a glass of water or some a can of water or something there, primed the pump. I remember that. I remember pumping water out of her pump at the kitchen sink. But they did have an indoor bathroom. But I went to some of my cousin's house that if you went to the bathroom, you had to go out the back. It was called an outhouse. Now, I thought it was neat. You know, I, I asked them, why can't we have one of these? Well, because you got indoor plumbing. And listen, let me tell you, there were those that were on the poverty level that had outhouses and those that were on the poverty level that had gotten an indoor bathroom and those who were on the poverty level with an indoor bathroom would look down in a conceited way on those who still had to go to the outhouse. So see, it doesn't have anything to do with a dollar. It has to do with an attitude that says, I've got something you don't and that makes me better than you. Whatever it might be. I'm in rare form today, right? Well, th there it is. That's I'm just telling you. What Here's the passage. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. Number two, here's the second. Or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches. Now, I have the NASB 95. And that's what I'm reading from. And it reads very well in English. But in the Greek, that is totally flipped the other way. To fix their hope. Of riches own the uncertainty. Now, that's the way it is in the Greek. Now, let me tell you what he's saying there. Why does he say it like that? Well, it's good Greek because here it is. Of riches is the genitive of possession. And he's showing that riches is the possession of uncertainty. Now, who owns the riches? You? No, uncertainty does. Do you see what he's saying? Your riches, what you have, is so uncertain. You think you own it, but uncertainty possesses whatever it is that you own. Now listen, this past Friday at uh, 4, 4 or 4.30, the market closed up 800 and some odd points. You want to bet me money it'll do that again this tomorrow morning? You want to bet on that? No, Why? Because it's liable to open a 1,000 points down. We don't know. It's uncertain. We're not sure. That's life. You've got a job this week. 
You may not have one next week. We've got a fairly stable economy right now. I don't know what's going to happen in six months. I found gas at $4.29 in Georgia. $4.29. I said, can you believe it? We're getting off and getting gas. That's great price. Two years ago, I'd have never said that. It's uncertain. You don't know. Don't put your hope in that. That's what he's saying. Instruct them. Teach them. Now, let me show you when he says, don't fix your hope. That's the perfect tense of the Greek verb. What Paul is saying there is this. The perfect tense implies something that continues on into the future. He is saying that once you put your hope in your wealth, in your riches, in your material possessions, it becomes very hard to break that habit. Now, a lot of us know that's true. We won't amen that. I, I might as well just amen myself on that. That's an amen. Amen. Because we put our hope in our wealth, in our riches, in our bank account, in all of those things. And let me tell you something. It becomes the habit of life. That's where I always go. That's what I always think about first. That's where I always go first because I've, I've started it and the habit has been built now. Just trust in that, trust in that, trust in that, trust in that. You trust in that all the way into hell, I'm telling you. He comes and he says this, the fruit of goodness embodies the character of God. God's not like that. If you want to see what goodness is, it's not uncertainty and it's not material things. Listen to this. Ezra chapter 3 verse 11. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good. Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. We have that written over our kitchen table. Psalm 105, for the Lord is good. Nahum 1, 7, the Lord is good. I want you to listen to what James Merritt said. He says, goodness is not feeling good, looking good, having goods. It is being good and doing good. God is good. Now, you remember when the rich young ruler came to Jesus in Mark chapter 10, and he said, good teacher? And Jesus stopped him at that point, and he said, why do you call me good since no one is good but God? God is good. If you want to see what goodness is, he says, don't look at the uncertainty of riches. Look at God. That's what's good. Not riches, not wealth, not the money that you've got in the bank, but God. And then he flips that around. And he says, just take a look at man. And so he comes to Romans chapter 7. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 7. Talking about himself. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that it is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. Now, we'd have to all say amen to that. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. Paul says, there's nothing good in me. And you say, when a preacher, men are good. Well, listen, let me tell you, the word of God will differ with you. If you go back to Romans chapter 3, as it quotes the Old Testament, it says there in Romans 3, verse 12, there is none who does good. There is not even one. We love to think we do good. Listen, let me tell you, the word, the word of God tells you this. No, there's not even one who does good. 
But God is good. And God is good to us. And he's good to us all the time. Listen, I, I, I was thinking about this. You can see the good of God in anything and everything. Um, we, were, we were in Florida the last week. Uh, I was down there teaching and preaching and uh, had a few days to, to see grandkids. And, you know, storm came up. Uh, I guess it was Friday afternoon. And just really sharp. Like, you know, Florida's the lightning capital of the world. I mean, you get struck in Florida quicker than anywhere else. And I, I was thinking about lightning. You know, even God's good in lightning. Do you know your body needs nitrogen? There's nitrogen in this atmosphere, but you can't absorb it. You can't take it in. So what does God do? God just sends a lightning bolt. He, he, he just, you know, he electrifies the atmosphere around, and it separates nitrogen from the atmosphere, and the rain catches it and pours it down on the ground, and the ground takes that and Plants grow up by it, and you eat the plants, and do you know what you do? You take in that nitrogen, or you eat animals that eat the grass. That's even better. You eat animals that eat the green stuff. You don't have to eat the green stuff. Just eat the animals that eat the green stuff, and you take in nitrogen that way because God has separated. What he did was this, is there's bacteria in there that separates the nitrates from the nitrites so that now you're able to take in even in lightning, God is being good to every human on this earth. God is good. Now, what were we on? The first point? Was that the first point? No, that was the introduction. Let me preach now. Here we go. Here me give you the second thing. The second thing is this, is goodness expresses the generosity of God. Now, watch it what he says here. I'm halfway through verse 17. So, go back to the middle part of verse 17 but he says this, instruct them not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Put your hope in God. Why? Because he richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. He gives us all the good things in life. Look at what it's saying right there. He doesn't just give us something. He gives us he gives us things richly. He richly supplies what we need in life. You got enough air right now? Well, don't worry. You don't have to, you don't have to, you know, just take a half breath. You're not going to suck it all up because God's going to keep supplying. He richly supplies. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see what he's saying? He richly supplies. These grandkids will come over to the house on the 4th because I'm going to cook them hot dogs and hamburgers. I'm going to cook me a steak, but y'all going to get hamburgers. No, and uh, they'll come through. They'll go through the line and every time they go through the line and, and uh, you know, we'll have potato chips, I'll pick up one potato chip and I'll put it on Cole's plate. There's one potato. I said, look, when you get through with that, we'll think about giving you another one, you know. And he'd just look at me like, Doc, you, you've lost your mind, you know. Honey said this would happen one day. So, um, and then I'll look him out and give him a bunch more. But I, I do that just picking at these kids. God doesn't do that. God didn't say, hey, hey, I'll just give you a drop of mercy in the, in the midst of this cancer situation. I'll just give you a drop of mercy here. He doesn't do that. He doesn't come when you sin. Well, I'll just give you a couple of drops of grace, and that's all that they'll be. He doesn't come to us and say, well, you know what? You know, I'll give you a, a couple of drops of love, 
He lavishes his love on them. He lavishes his mercy and his forgiveness and his goodness. He lavishes his grace on us. He doesn't begrudgingly say, well, okay, take this since you've got to have it. God loves to give. I've been with 10 of my grandchildren. Five of those I haven't seen in a year. We just love being with them. We want to be. And you just lavish. You take them out to eat. What you want to eat, get it then. But why? You want to lavish your love on them. Let me tell you something. I, I, I'm, not the, I'm not a good man. The word of God. None are good. Not even one. Not even your pastor. I'm not a good man. But I love my grandkids. And I want somebody to take care of me when I get old. So what I do? I lavish it on them. I give it to them. That's what he's saying right here. God who richly supplies us with all things. And then he comes back and look at what he says. So instruct them to be like God. Be like me. The character of godliness it, it expresses the generosity of God. So instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. He says, you, you turn around and in giving, you are expressing, you are showing the generosity of God. You know, I had a pastor here within the last couple of weeks who gave me a pair of 500, a pastor, a preacher, a Baptist preacher of all things who gave me a pair of $500 boots, brand new, just had them sent to me. I'd never pay $500 for a pair of boots. No way. I had a, I had a guy, just a general guy, not a preacher, down in Houston who walked into my office in Dallas it just walked into my, walked in there with a pair of ostrich Lucases he paid $1,000 for. If I paid $1,000 for a pair of boots, we would, within two days, have her funeral. <laughs> I'd never think of paying $1,000 for a pair of boots, but I've had people who have been incredibly generous to me in life. I just stop and think about my life. My life is just being the recipient of what good, godly people have poured into me. That's my life. And I, I got news for you. That's your life too. That's your life. And that's exactly what he's saying. Take what I have given you and turn around and pour it into other people. Do you know that's where joy comes from? That's why you can work at your job all week and get really not a whole lot of satisfaction, but you see some little old lady on the side of the road who's got a flat Friday afternoon in the middle of traffic, and you stop and you help that woman. You don't know who she is, and you help her change that tire, and you get back in the car, and you got grease on, and you know what you say? I just feel good, though. Why? Because you've done good. You've done something good. Now, that comes from mimicking God, from acting like Jesus Christ. There was a young girl that was born years ago. Her mom and dad had already had a son. He would die. Tragically, he would die. They did not want her. Fortunately, they did not abort the child. But the mother never loved the daughter, and the father never really cared for her. 
And uh, she grew up and she could sense that her mother never cared for her. Mother never wanted to be bothered with her. And so she never was. And her father only paid her look, a little bit of attention after her brother had died because he wanted the girl to take over the business and to carry on his legacy. That's all he was interested in, his legacy, not her. By the time she was 18, she hated herself. She had a nose job. She had an eye job because she couldn't stand the way she looked. She always felt like that she was too big, that she was too fat, that she was too this, too that. She already started on barbiturates to keep weight off. By 19, she had an abortion. The next uh, number of years, uh, she went through four husbands. The first one in nine months, the second one in 14 months. But she went through four of them in 20 years. But in 1969, her dad died. She inherited 55% of his empire. And his empire netted her, in today's dollars, $7 million a week. A week. $7 million. Her name? Christina Onassis. Her stepmother that she hated and never liked was Jacqueline Kennedy, who married her father. And uh, when her dad died, she took the business, but she lived opulently. She loved Diet Coke. When she ran out of Diet Coke, she would dispatch a private jet from Athens to New York to pick up a couple of cases at the price of around 230 some odd thousand dollars to bring her back a case or two of Diet Coke. She'd been on a ski vacation up in Switzerland and she left her David Bowie tape in the hotel, so she sent a private helicopter from Athens, Greece, back to Switzerland to pick up her David Bowie tape. I guess it never dawned on her, just go to the store and buy another one. She would pay somewhere between twenty dollars and $30,000 a month for some girls just to come over to the house so that they would pretend like they were her friends. When you make $7 million a week, I guess you can do that. She died at 38 years of age in the bathtub of a heart attack because of the damage barbiturates had done to her heart. Alone, by herself, with her millions. God says, it's not how much you've got. It's who you got. It's who you got. Do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Have you ever put your faith and your trust in him? Have you ever gone to him and confessed that you are a sinner And you cannot save yourself. And that you received his forgiveness, his work on the cross for your life. And if you have, out of the good treasure of your heart, do you bring forth good things for others? Let's stand and pray for for our own selves. And for where we are. How about you? I go back to those of you who've never trusted in Christ. 
God's speaking to your heart right now. Right now in this place, in this moment, right where you're standing with your head bowed, you can pray. If you're not certain what to pray, let me share with you what you can pray. Just call on the name of Jesus. Lord Jesus, I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I receive your work on Calvary. I believe that you died for me. And I believe that you were raised to give me eternal life. And as best I can in this moment, I put my faith and my trust and my hope and my love in you. And I receive your finished work for my life. If you just prayed that prayer, I wish you would come and just tell me right here that you've given your life to Jesus Christ or that you prayed that prayer with me. Or maybe this morning you say, Pastor, I want to come and would you lead me through that? Yes, I'll be glad to do that. Others of us this morning, we claim Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Could it be said of us that God's presence is so real in our lives that his spirit produces the good that we bear to show the world? Jesus said, Do your works. Do good works before the world so that they will see your good works and glorify not you, but the Father. Now, where are you in all of that? Lord, in these moments, I pray this invitation would honor you and that we would respond, Father, understanding we're not responding to a building or to a denomination or to a pastor, we're responding right now to Almighty God, the God who has been so good to us. And I pray it in your name. Would you come as God speaks? Would you slip out right now and just come and make that decision that God's talking to you about? Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.